Vancouver has made some bold draft decisions over the past few years. They have also landed a few superstars, and their goaltending looks pretty decent. Can they build a team that contends every year, though? Meantime, Vegas has already shown that it can, but cap space has emerged as their primary enemy over the past 12 months. The good news for them is they still have a decent crop of young recruits waiting in the wings. How do their prospect pools stack up? Episode 222 of the Lace Up Podcast starts right now. And now, it's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Duboff. Before we talk about uh, the V teams, Vancouver and Vegas, uh, just going to quickly look over uh, what's been going on uh, in the world of hockey. Um, The QMJHL has said that it plans to start the 2020-21 season on October 1st and play a full 68 games. We'll see how that goes. Uh, meantime, the NHL, I believe the verdict is rebracketing over seeding. Um, I, I think they reached a decision on that, and um, it'll be best of seven series for rounds one through four. So after the playing round, it's best of seven. Um, but they did make a decision whether it was reseeding or bracketing. Um, I think it was reseeding. I could be wrong, um, but I'm pretty sure I heard reseeding. Um, but they did make a decision, and the playoff picture looks a bit more clear. Um, and there's also, I'm sure a lot of people know, a lot of stuff going on in yeah. the United States of America in regards um, to the protests, Black Lives Matter, and, and the death of George Floyd. And just a lot of stuff happening all around the United States. And more athletes are speaking up about this, in particular Jets captain Blake Wheeler. I was really, really impressed and gained a newfound respect for Blake Wheeler. Like, I respected him from the beginning. Right. But just gained a newfound respect for him uh, after uh, he spoke his piece um, earlier last week, right? Yeah, he had a nice statement. Um, also, Patrice Bergeron had a good statement too. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, that one. I I have more respect for ones or statements that say like, I um, I realize that silence is not the answer, and I would rather use my voice as a professional athlete. That's mm-hmm. verbatim from what Patrice Bergeron was saying. So it's he's gonna take these uh issues more seriously from now on and he he ended it with like i will not be quiet anymore uh they chara was also on um at the march or they showed him um at one of the black Lives matters um marches um i think tyler sagan said something that was pretty poignant yeah claude Giroux as well yeah i mean there's a lot of them jt brown um you know, like the NHL retweeted a bunch of the statements uh, like last week. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of people who are in support of it. And, you know, the thing that's interesting about hockey, and it's something that we don't really talk about too much now, but um, is that hockey is predominantly a white sport. And so yeah. you often, like, it's hard to tell that, like, obviously – 
you know, you'd like to think that everyone in the league is not racist or, you know, is not, um, or knows better and all that stuff. But, um, I think there is like a culture thing where when most of the league is white, um, it's definitely, um, it makes it harder for black, uh, black hockey players to speak up. So I appreciate all the black hockey players who were um, speaking up on Twitter because they're setting an example for the rest of the league, even more so. Um, so, <laughs> and and what really in- interested me about Blake Wheeler is that he was on like a media conference call yeah. for forty five minutes, and they barely talked about hockey. It was just this, right? Um, so that that was particularly refreshing. Yeah. Just to clarify what I said earlier, they opted uh, for reseeding after each round. Yeah. Um, in terms of the playoff format, so just wanted and to clarify. I, and I believe. Um, oh, and two things before we get going. Um, I believe the I saw that the Bruins are starting skating right now. Mm. Like they opened up skating for them. Um, and then lastly, I just saw that um, Evander Kane, Matt Dumba, Chris Stewart, Wayne Simmons, Joel Ward, Trevor Daly, and Akeem Aliu have formed a hockey diversity alliance. Mm, um, okay. So, yeah, this just came out today um so i think it's uh the alliance is to uh, inspire a new generation of hockey players and fans we are hopeful that anyone who puts on skates or sits in the stands will do so without worrying about race gender or socioeconomic background and will be able to express their culture identity values and personality without fear of retribution um so that's uh this is evander kane just tweeted this out at an hour ago, um, so um, so that's probably why you didn't see it. And I didn't mention it to you beforehand, but I thought I should mention that. Um, okay, so let's start with uh, the Vancouver Canucks. It's been a while; it feels like forever since we talked about prospects. Um, but we're back on the grind, and we have four more teams to go. So we're gonna. Do the V teams now, and then we'll do the W teams next week, mm-hmm. if all goes to plan. Uh, so if the first uh, the first V team is Vancouver. Um, of course, they have they already have. I mean, I guess Pedersen and Quinn Hughes are not prospects, but they're both pretty young. But they they've already like they met. I mean, Quinn Hughes has a chance of getting the Calder this year, so they. They might have a chance of getting two Calder Trophy winning uh, winners on the same team in two straight years, which would be pretty impressive. But um, anyways, uh, so so a lot of these prospects are probably going to join uh, Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, even if Hughes doesn't win the Calder. Um, you also have, um, so Brock Besser too, um, who's, who's pretty good too. And was a Calder candidate a couple of years ago. Um, anyways, UFAs we have here are Tyler Toffoli, who they, if you remember, they traded uh, Tyler Madden with. Um, and then you have uh, Chris Chris Tanev and Oscar Fantenberg. 
Um, as for RFAs, there's Jake Furtonen, Tyler Mott, Adam Gadet, and uh, Zach McEwen, and Troy Stetcher. Um, oh, and I, I guess the bigger one is uh, Jacob Markstrom is also going to be a UFA, which will be interesting. I mean, we're going to talk about Mike DiPietro and Thatcher Demko in a bit, but um, what they do with Jacob Markstrom this year is going to be an interesting situation considering that they already have Demko and DiPietro in the mix already. So um, it will be interesting to see how they uh, handle the goalie situation. And I'm also seeing here that Josh Levio is also a UFA this year too. So, um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's start off with our first prospect for Vancouver here is it was their 10th overall pick last year in the draft. Uh, but it seems like he's going to take a, a couple more years because he's in the KHL. Uh, this is Vasily Podkolzin. Um, yeah, so he, uh, so he played, I guess, the, his draft year, the year before that, he um, he only played three games in the, for St. Petersburg, and he didn't have any points, which is fine, I guess. But um, in the minor leagues that year, he had uh, five points in 14 games. In the VHL, I guess that's the minor leagues. Um and then he had eight points in 12 games for Scott St. Petersburg in the MHL, which I guess is another minor league. So I'm not really sure of the big difference there. But um, he um, also played for Ru Team Russia in the World Juniors that year, where he had three points in seven games that year. Um, this year, uh, he also played... He played in three different leagues as well. Um, he played for the two in two games in the MHL, four points in two games. Then I guess he went to the VHL and he had eight points in sixteen games. Um, and then he played for Scott St. Petersburg in the KHL for thirty games, where he had eight points. It also says that they played some playoff games too in the KHL, where he had three points in four games in the playoffs. So. It looks like, or just from these stats, obviously I haven't seen him play, but um, it looks like from those stats that he's kind of figuring out how to play in the KHL. Um, and then in the World Juniors, uh, he had five points in seven games, uh, four assists and one goal. Um, I believe when he was drafted, they talked a lot about how he's like more of a power forward than, um, than just a normal forward. Uh, so that should make things interesting because I think power forwards tend to develop uh, slower than other forwards that we're used to. Um, but that seems to be okay because he's, I don't expect him to be in the league right away anyways. But um, once he's in the league, it seems like he'll be a very good prospect for them or very good player for them. And which come, could come into handy for them because he is one of their, um, like, you know, eventually Elias Pedersen's going to get paid and uh, Quinn Hughes is going to get paid a lot. So um, they're going to eventually have to rely on these 
uh, pro- like entry level contracts of players and uh, figure it out that way because uh, there's like it's going to be tough to keep those two together and keep a good team as well. So, um, yeah, I think he could be a good player for them eventually. But, um, yeah, so he would definitely be a top six player. Um, I guess Brock Besser would be their his only competition. Um, and JT Miller, too. Uh, I take that back. Um, and who knows if Tyler Toffoli is still going to be on the team or not. But, um, yeah, it should be... Uh, he, uh, I think the the Canucks can afford to wait on him, and if and once they do, which I'm certain they will, it's um, he'll be a, a good player for them. Yeah, and I I will mention um, what's happening with their scouting staff once we get to the oh, end yeah. of Vancouver because I do think that's something uh, to keep in mind, and part of that revolves around this right. guy, but other cases too. Um, but we'll focus more on the player. Um, I. The debate was whether or not he was worthy of being drafted in the top 10. Um, but I can kind of see why Vancouver chose him, because when you look at guys like Brock Besser and you look at guys uh, like Elias Peterson, they're very skilled forwards, but they're probably going to be the subject of a lot of hooking and grabbing and slashing from the opponents. And you want guys that um, aren't going to take that. And Paul Colson is one of those guys that, yes, he has a fine hockey sense. Yes, he's a very skilled winger, but he's very in your face. And I feel like that's kind of the type of player that Mikhail Furland is now. But Furland is in the prime of his career. Paul Colson, um, it should be noted that he's 18 years old, going to be turning 19 on June 24th. So he's not even 20 years old. He's a pretty young player. So you're going to need someone like Furland to inject in the lineup for many, many years. And uh, I think Pod Colson kind of fits that brand of hockey, a guy that you could slot into your top six or your top nine, but plays a grittier style of play, isn't going to take anything from anybody, and will – also try to instigate the opponent. I feel like that's a piece that uh, Vancouver could use to their offense, a very versatile player like that. And Craig Button really likes what um, what this guy brings. Um, someone that uh, all it takes is a few strides and he's at his top speed. If you want someone that possesses all the qualities you want in a player, Craig Button feels that Pud Colson fits that bill. Um, someone who's very strong on the puck, um, and also someone that, while he does play in your face, doesn't get in trouble too often. He's a pretty disciplined player, which is key. Like, you want a guy that plays on the edge, but isn't a liability to the team because he's in the box too much. So that's something uh, to keep in mind. Hmm. The fact that his ice time did increase in the KHL playoffs, and he was able to get three points in four games, uh, the fact that he was able to kind of get his offense going before that, that's good news for Vancouver. Uh, it makes them look a little bit better with their selection. Um, I definitely see him playing another year in Russia. Um, I think that's probably best for his development after that. We'll see. Um, but I think the signs of him becoming a decent player for Vancouver are there. Um, what's probably going to get a lot of people talking Vancouver is – 
Should we have taken him in the top 10, though? Yeah. And that's unfortunate for Pod Colson because he can't control where the team takes him. The team just felt uh, he was there on the board and they're wise to take him, so they took a chance, and uh, he was their 10th overall selection. That's at no fault to the player at all. Yeah, I think the thing was, uh, or from what I remember the story was, is that Jim Benning really wanted... Uh, Philip Broberg, but yeah. uh, Broberg was uh, very like was already picked at eight for Edmonton, um, yeah. and a lot of their scouts really wanted Pod Colson because they've they've watched more of Pod Colson's game and they also watched a lot of Broberg's game. But I think they also mentioned that they felt that Benning favored Broberg because. Like, uh, he had only seen Broberg play, like, one game at a tournament. So it was, like, a small sample size where all these scouts were only, like, seeing a bunch of uh, different games from all these prospects. So Yeah, like, uh, imagine yeah. imagine someone only saw one game of Patrick Stefan. It was the best game of his career. And just, like, I want to take that guy first overall. Right, right. So, yeah, maybe that's what happened. Uh, but then, like... So then I think after, like, I guess it's like a typical thing that the GM uh, usually, like, pays attention to the first round pick, and then um, then the later rounds, they don't, um, you know, they just leave it to what the scouts have, um, uh, because the scouts ha- are more aware of, of what's going on, whereas the GMs are more aware of the, the top players in each draft. Um, but I guess the thing that happened was Jim Benning took players from his own list, um, and not, not from what he didn't disregarded what the scout said. Uh, by the way, this is all like, um, hearsay really. Cause this mm. is just from, I think it's, uh, some guy from the athletic, uh, who, covers the Canucks so yeah I've also got some info from Ryan Kennedy of the Hockey News and Ian McIntyre of Sportsnet that I'll share later but yeah that's that's the gist of it Um, the story is that round two to seven last year Benning basically um, stiff armed the scouts and drafted the picks by himself basically and you know I think like it may I mean obviously when you draft Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes who should have gone earlier in hindsight than where they were picked um, now, like obviously three years later or two years later. But, um, but so like you do get some like leeway when you draft those guys, but still it's, and it's also a little like if you're um, a um, like, I think it would be strange if, like, scouts and GMs didn't argue um, about these different players because that's, like, it just shows you care if you're, Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're doing that. But uh, I think, I think from what I hear or what I read, it sounded like um, Benning, like, was more of an extreme case where he, he only took what he thought was best and didn't even consider what the scouts thought so yeah like it's it's okay to have passionate arguments about a hockey player when you get into the point where you don't trust the other guy that's where things get dicey of course yeah 
So the next guy we're going to talk about is Michael DiPietro. Um, and it's a little bit of an interesting case because I just mentioned it with Vancouver's cap friendly page, but Jacob Markstrom is going to be a UFA this year um, or this coming year. Um, and Thatcher Demko is also in the mix too. But uh, Michael DiPietro, um, you've, you love this guy. Um, you, you keep on talking about Michael DiPietro. I'm an avid Michael DiPietro fan, that yes. is fact. Um, and uh, so a little bit, some, I, guess, I guess I'm going to pull some stats here because, um, because of this. But uh, in, uh, he, he had a really good year for the Windsor Spitfires. Oh, this, is, <laughs> this might be the first time where I have to combine... His two OHL numbers from goalies here, because he went from the Windsor Spitfires to the Ottawa 67s in the 2018-2019 season, but they showed me only like this. They don't combine the stats, so um, I'm just gonna. Um, I guess I'll say for the Ottawa 67s, he had a .897 save percentage and a 2.51 GAA in in uh, 17 games for Ottawa. And then for the Windsor Spitfires, he had a much better uh, save percentage and a GAA. He had a 920 save percentage and a 2.32 GAA um, in 21 games. Um, the year before that, which was when he really got noticed, was when he had a 910 save percentage and a 2.79 GAA um, in 56 games. Um, the year before that, was also pretty good too, where he had a 917 save percentage and a 2.35 GAA in 51 games. Um, the thing that's interesting though is that uh, his AHL numbers and his NHL numbers aren't that impressive, but um, but he, I mean, he still seems like he can take over a game like uh, some goalies can do. Um, his AHL numbers this year were uh, he had a 908 save percentage and a 2.79 GAA in 36 games. Um, and then for Vancouver, he played in one game where he had a 7.16 GAA and a save percentage of 857. I don't know if that means that he didn't even start that, that game or something like that, or maybe like Demko or... Markstrom had a bad game, so he just took over. Because 7.16 seems like such a crazy, like large number that I don't know if he. Um, well, I, I do remember one know. of the games. I don't remember how the other one went, but one of the games, I think it was due to injuries, and he started okay. against San Jose, and San Jose just absolutely wrecked the poor kid. Yeah. Uh, that might have been the year before that, because that might have been his yeah. first game, uh, where he had a 7 GAA. Yeah, but, it could have been a relief appearance yeah, or something. So, yeah. uh, so that's possible, but I figure I should bring one it up. The, just one, one of them, at least, yeah. was a start, and it did not go well for him. Yeah, but, you know, it's like, I, I think, especially for goalies, it's like, you don't, you definitely don't know what the goalie can be after, like, one or two games, so it's still... He still has potential to be uh, a very good player, obviously. Um, but, uh, yeah, so 
The thing that's interesting with DiPietro's situation is that Thatcher Demko is also there, who also was impressive at BC. Um, and uh, and he's been okay. He's he's been he's been okay as a backup this year. Uh, he went uh, 13, 10, and two uh, for Vancouver with a save percentage of 9.05 and a GAA of 3.06. So that's not great either. Um, but like the year before that, he had a 2.81 GAA and a 9.13 save percentage in nine games where he went 4-3-1. and one. So he was a little bit better the year before that. Um, of course, some of those games were uh, this year were when uh, – uh, Markstrom was injured, so he uh, he had to take more of the brunt of the battle. But um, and so I was before the I have him on my dynasty team, so I was curious to see how he would um, do when he was the man on the force, <laughs> uh, so to speak. Um, and um, it didn't seem like he was able to take over from that but I, I think for both these guys like they're both very good they were both very good in their junior year I believe Demko was like an, a Hobie Baker candidate one year um, so so he's definitely has potential as well um, but I think Demko will have the net just based off experience um, to start, but, uh, eventually it might just be DiPietro who will take over, um, eventually, or they could do a 1A, 1B situation, but that's assuming that Mark, they don't re-sign Markstrom, um, and, uh, that could also happen too, where Markstrom just becomes the starter, and then Demko and DiPietro are fighting for the backup role, uh, for the next couple of years. Yeah, that's. I think that's part of the reason why um, the debate about re-signing Markstrom, how much money he's going to get, how much term he's going to get, is partly because you have DiPietro behind him, uh, behind Demko, who's behind Markstrom. So, like, you don't want to give him too much term when in a couple of years you're going to be like, you know what, this DiPietro Demko tandem is probably the best route. Oh, but we got this guy signed, so we should probably trade him. Right. So, um. It's nothing that Markstrom did wrong. It's everything to do with their future situation between the pipes and how good Demko is and how good DiPietro is or could be. Um, but part of the reason why I think DiPietro is NHL starter material is because of his ability to bounce back. He's got a lot of those intangible traits that you look for in a goaltender. He is... A very nice person off the ice. Just a great guy in the community. Uh, just so friendly to everybody. Just a very chill guy. On the ice, he competes. His work ethic is outstanding. Um, if he has a bad game, he shakes it off. He learns from it. He gets back out there. And he does his job like any other day. And you know what? He's going to have... He's going to have uh, spells where he drops four or five in a row. But... It's all about confidence for a goaltender, and he has that confidence in himself that whenever he has a bad game or a bad stretch, he's able to shake that off and 
just continue to grind. And he continues to grind away. He gets rewarded for it. At the end of the day, he's still Mike DiPietro. He's still a fantastic goaltender. And it all started as a rookie. Like, the Windsor Spitfires in 2015-16, they went through four goalies. And DiPietro, by the end of the season, had asserted himself as their number one goaltender. This team had, I think, 40 losses the year before, um, were one of the lower-seeded teams in the Western Conference. They weren't very good, and they improved drastically the year after because of DiPietro. Um, you look at 2016-17, he gets 30 wins, um, posts a lot of good numbers uh, there, like top three in GAA, top five in save percentage. Again, a 30-win season in 51 games. Um, they have a rough go at it in the playoffs where they're up 3-1 to one on London, but London, of course, being London, wins three straight, knocks them out. But then they go to the Memorial Cup because they're the hosts, so they get through the back door. They go four straight on route to the championship. They beat a very tough Erie Otters team on two occasions, and DiPietro was a big reason why they did so well at the Memorial Cup there. And that's just a whole that's just the whole part of DiPietro competing, DiPietro learning from, you know, past defeats and just finding a way to rebound and just get the job done. And that's that's someone that just understands his role and just finds a way to give his team his all and every single time give them a chance to win and giving them a chance to win with very little offense to work with is what he did a lot in 2017-18 he was averaging 30 shots faced a night in 2017-18 he his win total only dropped by one he went 29-21 and four his GAA was up but again facing over 30 shots per game you would expect that more goals are, are going to find their way in. But there were a lot of times where he would face a lot of shots and he would just steal a game. For example, whenever he faced 30-plus shots in 2017-18, that happened 27 times. In 11 of those 27 games, he gave up two goals or less. He went 17-7-3 with four shutouts. If you look at... How many times he faced 35 or more shots? That happened 17 times. In six of those 17 games, he gave up two goals or less. And in 17 of those games where he faced at least 35 shots, Windsor was 8-6-3 and three, and DiPietro had two shutouts. On six occasions, he faced at least 40 shots, gave up two goals or less in half of those games. And in those six games, Windsor went 3-2-1 and one, and DiPietro even managed to post a shutout despite that. And in the in the playoffs, it was more of the same when they were up against a very tough Sarnia. Three of the first four games, he faced 45-plus shots in all of them. 45 in game one, 50 in game two, 47 in game four. And in two of those three games, Windsor got the victory. Simply because Mike DiPietro is just that good. And I get the following season hasn't been as dominant uh his final OHL season wasn't as dominant um but it's because he wasn't really facing a lot of shots in Ottawa and before the trade to the 67s he was basically 
holding Windsor above water once again, facing almost 29 shots per game. The team went 11-8-1 with him in the net and barely made the playoffs by four points, probably because of him, even after the trade. And then you look at this year with Utica, he had several runs where he would win like three or four games in a row. I think that happened three or four times. So again, it's, it's not so much the stats. It's can he rebound after a tough start? Does he have the mental toughness to rebound from a bad start? And can he be that consistent number one goalie? And for me, it's a yes on all three fronts. And that bodes well for his NHL future. All right, well, so I guess you're not deterred too much about I'm his... not deterred for one second. Okay. I can, I'm not going to guarantee that he beats out Demko for the number one job someday. I definitely think it's realistic. I'm not guaranteeing yeah. it, but I can definitely see it happen. No, I don't think that's a crazy opinion either. I just, because um, I think goalies are so um, volatile that, like, he could be... You know, he could be consistent once given a chance again, but um, but it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think to start that Demko will um, will get the the chance to to take over if if the Canucks do decide to move on from Markstrom. Um, mm-hmm. Although I I, de- I I have a feeling the Canucks are probably gonna re-sign Markstrom. I think they're probably going to keep him for another two years yeah. just to buy Di Pietro more time. And then after that, if they like what they see, Di Pietro comes up and Markstrom does and Demko, whatever. Yeah. I will say about for um, Demko is that, because um, I was just looking at his numbers while you were talking, uh, Demko, um, he, he actually had decent numbers for Utica as well. Uh, he had a 9-11 save percentage and a 2.58 GAA in 16 games last year. The year before that was when he was really impressive where he had a 9-22 save percentage and a GP, uh, GAA 2.44 in 46 games, so a bigger sample size. Um, and then his rookie year in uh, Utica, um, which I guess could give... Uh, Credence to Di Pietro because it's very similar, where he had a 907 save percentage and a 2.68 GAA in uh, 45 games. So, um, so yeah, he uh, Demko is also pretty good in the AHL. So I could also see Demko taking over and becoming the starter as well. But um, or I, I, it kind of reminds me of the Georgiev, Shesterkin, Lundqvist trio in in yeah. New York because Markstrom like he was pulling off a Vezina caliber season uh before he got injured a lot so um so yeah I think they're they're good in net but I I do wonder if maybe they do trade one of these goalies somehow although I don't know if that's the smartest thing but um it, I could see it maybe happening where they trade one of these goalies just to because they're both both Demko and DiPietro are too good not to be the full time starter someplace. So, mm-hmm. and um, before uh, DiPietro and Demko started their AHL careers, uh, Utica went to the AHL finals and ultimately yeah. lost to the Ontario Reign, I believe it was, or 
Uh, I can't remember if it was the Ontario Reign or if it was Columbus's affiliate, but they did end up losing in the finals. And the goalie for that team was Jacob Markstrom. Ah, I didn't know that. Yep. Wait, that's interesting, so, though, because Markstrom's like 32 or mm-hmm. 30. Sorry. But he, he, he was a late bloomer in the, in the oh, NHL, yeah, though. Right, yeah, and yeah. he did spend some time in Utica before he joined the Canucks. Well, that's why I, Okay. Oh, I see. So he wasn't. I thought you were mentioning it because he was young <laughs> back then. No, I'm just continuing the trend of Utica's had some good goaltending before Demko and DiPietro, even. I see. Um, so the next uh, guy we're going to talk about, speaking of Utica, uh, the next guy we're going to talk about is, um, is Cole Lind. Um, and I think the, the main reason why I wanted to talk about him was cause he had a, uh, he had an interesting, uh, well, his first year, which was in 2018, 2019, he had 17 points in 51 games, mm-hmm. um, uh, to start off. And then I believe I, as I have him, I also have him on my dynasty team. And I remember, like, hearing stories about him in, like, October or November that, like, he was leading the league in points, um, or leading the AHL in points all of a sudden, even though he had 17 points in 51 games for Utica the year before that. Uh, He ended the season with 44 points in 61 games, which, when I look here, uh, that puts him six um, in points in Utica uh, this year, uh, Reed Boucher had the most points, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, he's another right winger, um, but it seems like this guy's gonna be kind of like a late bloomer of sorts if, um, how he handles the AHL is any indication. Um, he was also in, uh, he also played for Kelowna for three years, uh, his last year was, um, he had 95 points in 58 games, uh, which is very impressive. The year before that was also impressive too, where he had 87 points in 70 games. Um, his rookie year, he had 41 points in 70 games. So I think it's, you know, just from how he handled the WHL to how he handled the HL, I could see it where he he gets he takes a while to get used to in the NHL but uh, once he gets going he'll he'll be a good player for them um, the thing uh, the other thing though that we have to consider though is uh, where he'll fit in the system because Brock Besser's there uh, JT Miller is also a right winger um, and then we have Pod Colson as well, so it's gonna be um, he might. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to be a legitimate winger um, or a right winger anytime soon. If if especially if Pod Colson uh, pans out, so um, I don't know. Uh, I guess maybe he could switch to being a center, even though that's also kind of filled too uh, with Bo Horvat and Elias Pettersson. Um, so maybe he goes to the left wing. Um, that could also happen too. But I think the thing that makes the most sense for Coland is that he just stays 
in the AHL maybe another year um, and plays a full season because he didn't play a, he technically didn't play a full season this year uh, for Utica and because he can they can afford to take some time with him um, so that he can uh, and then uh, and then maybe they can figure out if um, what to what to do with him uh, especially like let's say JT Miller isn't as good um, as he was this year as he was last year or something like that then maybe he'll um, maybe Colin will just be a third line uh, right winger or something like that um, but yeah for the moment he's kind of in a he, he may not have the edge on the um, you know the deployment side of things <clears throat> yeah he is in a precarious position there when we do talk about Niels Hoglander I will mention their left wing situation I think that is a better yep. front for him Brett because yep. uh, they have some good players but there isn't a slam dunk option of oh this guy is definitely a fit on the top line it's more along the lines of this guy, this guy, and this guy, either guy could be a top-line left-winger, but I'm still not 100% sure if they are. So um, that's why I think in order for him to make the biggest impact, he'll probably have to move uh, to the left side. Yeah, uh, but just taking a look at his awesome. numbers, if you're looking for a winger to produce, A, he's done that. Um, you, you did mention, uh, Brett, uh, in your breakdown, and I think it's a fair assessment where it takes a bit of time for him to get adjusted. Um, if you look at 2015-16 with the Kelowna Rockets, he had 14 goals and 27 assists for 41 points in 70 games. That's not a bad rookie year. Consider this, though. Not a single point on the power play. No goals, no assists on the power play. This was all done either even strength or shorthanded. Um, mostly even strength. So 41 points in 70 games without any power play production is pretty impressive. Uh, the power play production starts to come in 2016-17 when he has six goals and 21 assists with the extra man. He had 30 goals, 57 assists, and 87 points in 70 games overall. Um, so again, a much better stint there. In 17 playoff games in 2017, he had six of each and uh, seven points on the power play. Then we go to 2017-18, where, as Brett mentioned, he has 95 points. Also scored 39 goals in those 58 games. Almost averaged a full assist per game as well. Um, he had 14 goals and 19 assists on the power play. That's 33 power play points. Uh, and in the playoffs, he only played in four games in 2018, but he had three goals, five assists, and averaged over five shots per game. So definitely made an impact in the short time he played there. Um, if you look at his current season this year, um, again, didn't produce on the power play when he put it up 17 points in 51 games the year prior. This time around, he has six of his 14 goals on the power play. He has uh, 30 assists on the year and 117 shots. He only had 64 the year before and uh, only played in 10 more games. So his shots per game is almost up at two this year. Um, and I think part of the reason is because of how he was deployed in Utica, because um, you have Reed Boucher, who, say what you will about his NHL stats, his AHL stats the last couple of years have been awesome. He's been yeah. 
the uh, Utica Comets' best player offensively. You also have Zach McEwen and Tanner Caro last year posting a strong majority of shots, goals, and points on that roster. All three guys eclipsed 22 goals and 50 points. Um, Boucher had a 31-goal season, 62 points, and 270, uh, 227 shots on target, excuse me. And that t- uh, trifecta of Boucher, McEwen, and Caro combined for 29 goals on the power play. And surprise, surprise, Holland had zero uh, last year. Um, so the fact that he was able to get an increased workload and more time on the top six in Utica, I think that's part of the reason why he's done so well. And I think it's going to be more of the same pattern when it gets to the NHL because he's not going to be getting top six minutes right away. So I don't expect the stats to... Uh, pile up right away but I think give him a year or two when he gets his feet wet and you put him in the right position he could do some damage for you um I also feel like I should make a correction here uh that I kept on saying that JT Miller is a right winger uh he's a left winger actually uh oh, really? yeah or according to daily faceoff they have him as a left winger now I think that's probably experimentation so, so, yeah, because of Tuffoli. Um, in terms of left wingers, here is, well, uh, may, maybe he was just experimented on the right wing. According to what I got from Daily Faceoff, yeah, or actually no, JT Miller is a left winger. Yeah, that's what okay. I'm saying. Yeah, so he is on my he is on my list. So the list of left wingers, uh, we'll we'll mention this now. Yeah, the list of left wingers are Tanner Pearson, JT Miller, Antoine Roussel, Tyre Mott, Mikhail Furland, Sven Berchi, Nikolai. Goldolden and Reed Boucher, if you count the minor guys that could be NHLers. Right. Uh, and then you have on the right side Brock Besser, Tyler Toffoli, Jake Bertan, and Josh Lebo, Louis Erickson, and Justin Bailey. Yeah. So it's more, I mean, Toffoli may not be on the team next year anyway, so uh, it'd be mm-hmm. tough to, to see. So maybe if Toffoli's not uh, there anymore, then maybe that could see fit for Coolind. Um, but. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously but even then, though, I, I, I don't think they've given up on the idea of Jake Bertin and scoring a lot of That's goals for too. Vancouver. I still think they see potential there. Yeah, I could see that, too. That's a good point. Um, but I don't know. Um, but, like, it's another option. And I guess that's also, yeah. like, I mean, I mostly have a fantasy hockey mindset. But like even just putting him on the third line, that's not a that's not a bad deal for him either. Um, I mean, I also see here that Coland uh, has one more year left on his contract, so maybe we'll see him in the NHL for a bit uh, this year for this upcoming year. Um, okay, so let's go to uh, the next guy, Niles Hoglander. Uh, you may have heard of this guy because um, every now and then um, he would I would see these like videos of him on either Twitter or YouTube where he would they call it the lacrosse goal where he would take yep. the puck uh, mm-hmm. in the air from his stick and put it into the net on the top He's, half. He scored yeah. one this year actually too. Yeah, he sc- he he does. I think that was like his third. Uh, time that he's actually done it um and he did it before like Andre Sveshnikov did it in the NHL but Hoglander did it even before him so he's like more known for that type of goal um 
And then I guess there was another one where he, like, he passed through his legs, which is also impressive, too. Um, so, so yeah, just from, like, seeing those videos of him, it seems like he's going to be, uh, like, a very flashy player, which is fitting because Elias Pedersen plays that similar way, too. So, maybe he'll be on Pedersen's line in the future. Uh, yeah. but anyways, uh, I can talk about his stats right now where he, um, so this year, um, he, he's, he plays for this in the Swedish hockey league. Um, he had 16 points in 41 games for Rogel BK. If I remember correctly, I think that's where Dominic Bach played in. Um, that's the same team. Um, but he also, uh, Hoglander played for Team Sweden in the World Juniors, where he had 11 points in seven games. Yeah. Um, the year before that, he had 14 points in 50 games uh, for uh, in the SHL, um, which uh, also doesn't seem like a, t- a ton, but um, if you remember, like it's, the SHL is a professional hockey league filled with a bunch of 30-year-olds or uh, late 20-year-olds, and um, the fact that he was 19 at the, or 18 at the time, uh, that's very impressive that he was able to do that. Um, so uh, I just see here that he recently just signed an entry-level contract with the Canucks, so we'll see him in Utica this year. Um, and like most of these European players, I, I am always curious about how they will transition from north to the North American ice. So that that's still a question mark. But um, as you were mentioning before, like in terms of left wingers, it's pretty much JT Miller and Tanner Pearson. Um, Sven Bereshi, I mean, you mentioned him. He hasn't, like he seems to be inconsistent um, a lot of the time. So... Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Goldobin's the same way. Both Gold have Dobin's had good years in the too. AHL, but just in the NHL, yeah. it hasn't come together for them. Uh, oh, I've seen here Michael Furland is also uh, on their team, too. I forgot yeah. about him. Uh, hard hard, hard to remember he's, because uh, he's, yeah. he's had concussion problems, unfortunately. Although I believe he's a right winger, right? Um, I, I, on my depth chart, it was left wing, but that was oh. according to Daily Faceoff. So I think I think maybe he could play both wings. But. Okay. So, yeah, maybe, I mean, I guess that's the other thing for Cole Lind, as you were mentioning, is he could be a left winger too. But I think you're, you're, you, you do have the right mindset that on the left side, there's more room for any of these prospects to uh, truly get, get a good position in the lineup. Yeah, to make a strong claim, yeah. Exactly. So, um, and it seems like, are just at least on elite prospects that uh, Hoglander is listed as a left winger. He doesn't even play right wing or center. Yeah. So, um, so I think we'll probably see him in. Uh, U- I mean, I- I'll be curious to see how he does in Utica um, to start, but I wouldn't be surprised if we even see him next year um, towards the end of the season. Um, that could be a pretty cool thing for him. Yeah, what's what's interesting that I found out when I looked at elite prospects, he scored goal of the year in the SHL for not just this year, but also the year before. Oh. So for 
a teenager to score goal of the year in back-to-back years, that's not easy to do. So that just kind of shows you what kind of skill this guy possesses. Um, just his puck skills, his sick hands, it's, it's all exceptional. Um, just a really good stick handler who isn't shy of trying to get creative. Um, like you said, lacrosse goals, um, any kind of spectacular goal. Um, just really likes to push the envelope in terms of the skill set button and just overall a decent skater. So a threat in the offensive zone each game, that, that sounds prime for a future spot on Vancouver's top line, especially with the kind of vision that Peterson has. You just have a feeling that those two might click together uh, almost immediately. Um, and the fact that he had a strong showing at the World Juniors um, also speaks volumes. Uh, there's definitely going to be the question of, okay, what's going to happen when he gets to the AHL? And it's interesting because, like we mentioned with like the AHL regulars that were also fringe NHLers, uh, guys like uh, Nikolai Goldobin, uh, guys like Sven Berchi that are currently in the AHL, I believe they play on the left side. So, and, and they're producing. Yeah. Like they've been producing for the Utica Comets. So, you know, that the coach over there is probably thinking, you know, I like this Hoglander kid, but if good, if Goldobin's on a hot streak right now, you know, I'm going with the hot end too. So right. I don't, for that reason alone, I don't expect success to come right away for Hoglander. It could be more of a feeling out, more of a development stage next year. Uh, maybe he does light it up. Who knows? But I, I don't expect him to right away. Um, I think it's just going to be more getting used to the North American format, just finding his rhythm, and then maybe in year two with the comments, he really takes off. Uh, but but you never know with prospects. He could fit in right away, and the rest is history. So uh, um, it, it'll be interesting uh, to see uh, what happens there. They do have some very talented left-wing prospects. Uh, Mark Michaelis is another name. He played four years at Minnesota State University, came over from Germany before that, and um, this guy was posting pretty good stat lines for um, a college player. He had 36 points in 39 games with the Mavericks his first year. He then had 40 points in 36 games in year two, 42 points in 42 games in year three, and then to cap off his four-year stay, he had 44 points in 31 games, which included 20 goals, um, which, again, for college players, that's very good numbers. Right. Uh, and then you also have someone like Francis Perron, who a couple of years ago was a pretty respectable prospect in Ottawa's pool, and then he went along with Eric Carlson to San Jose. Then he got traded to Vancouver from San Jose. So that... Um, but outside of Mark Michaelis, um, in terms of like standout left wing prospects, Hoglander's probably right at the top. And given the amount of depth that the Canucks have on the left wing, but a lack of slam dunk left wingers, this guy belongs on the top line with Elias Peterson. Um, that that list is it's pr- there's some wide open real estate for Hoglander to just jump right in and just take that spot. So I'm really interested to see what he does. Yeah, um, there's definitely room for him too. Um, so I could see that happening. Um, all right, let's go with uh, Jet Wu. Um, I feel like I should. Uh, I 
have to say that I think Vancouver prospects have the best names ever. Um, I feel yeah, like this is a good, good, good uh, chance <laughs> time to to talk about that because uh, I mean Cole Lind is okay, but like uh, Brogan Rafferty, who we'll talk about yeah. in a second, even uh, Niles Hoglander, that's pretty cool. Jet Wu is probably one of the coolest names ever. Uh, Jack yeah. Rathbone, um, it's like that sounds like an action hero. So <laughs> it's, so um, I I have to get I don't know. I know the scouts and Jim Benning are uh, feuding over prospects and stuff, but um, I wonder if they they just pick with uh, you just go with the best name of the the best name. Yeah, uh, they're like, oh, this is a cool name. Let's uh, let's go with this guy. Um, it kind of worked for them. I mean, but we'll see. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, Jet Wu, uh, he played for he's played for the Calgary Hitmen this year. Uh, he had, he has the A here, um, uh, he's the alternate captain, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. for the Hitman. He had, uh, 46 points in 64 games. Uh, the year before that was when he really took off, um, or when I think he started to blow up on the scene, where he had 66 points in 62 games. Um, I believe his draft year, uh, he had 25, uh, so that would be the 2017-2018 season for Moose Jaw. Mm-hmm. He had uh, 25 points in 44 games. Um, and then he took off the next year, uh, his draft plus one year. Um, I remember back during that that year when he was drafted, that like I kept on looking at mock drafts sporadically and I kept on seeing Jet Wu was around um there like he was going to be a first round pick but uh, a late first round pick but then it turned out that he was a second round pick um in 2018 he was picked 37th overall um yeah so I think um but I, I think it's uh, it, it reminds me a lot of that situation with uh, Cole Lind, where I think he'll, it'll take a while for him to get used to things, but once he does, he'll be a very good player for them. Um, just for the defensive side of things, because we haven't really talked about it that much, um, you have Edler for one more year, Tyler Myers for five more years, um, and then you have, I mean, of course, you have Chris uh, Quinn Hughes, who's going to be a RFA in uh, another year as well. So um, we have Jet Wu, who's in the system. You also have Brogan Rafferty, um, Jack Rathbone, who's the college equivalent to to Jet Wu. So, um, so maybe those guys are going to be in replacement for... Um, for for guys like Troy Stetcher and Chris Tanev and Oscar Fantenberg. Um, however, I think all those guys I just mentioned are going to take some time um, to get acclimated to the NHL, although um, I wouldn't be surprised. I think Brogan Rafferty probably has the best chance to see, we'll see him more soon. Uh, just because he's in the AHL um, right now, and he's been pretty good for the, in the AHL. Um, Brogan Rafferty, before you say anything, Brogan Rafferty has 45 points in 57 games, so uh, he could be pretty good for them 
um, next year. Yeah, and um, the AHL a couple of weeks ago released uh, their first team and second team All-Stars, and these are like the top 10 players in the league. Not just conference, like in the league, and Rafferty was on the second team. So yeah, he had a pretty okay season uh, with the Utica Comets, and um, that they had a top four power play. He was a big reason for that. Um, so we'll take a look at uh, Jet Wu. Like you mentioned, um, didn't really take off until uh, the 2018-19 season. But uh, the key thing to note is that Moose Jaw had a lot of depth on their blue line um so in his rookie season when he had 22 points in 65 games um yeah guys like josh brooke and matt sozanke um on the team and that team was pretty balanced i think uh there were five defenders um that recorded at least 20 points so there was a lot of defensive depth there and the leader josh brooke had 40 points um so they had a very balanced blue line there uh, you look at his draft year, you had Kale Clegg and Brandon Schuldhaus, uh that were brought in to add defensive depth to the Warriors. Uh, you had four other defenders who posted at least 25 points. So again, very good defensive depth there. Uh, Wu ranked six on the team in defensive scoring and was 13th on the roster in total points. But again, 25 points and only 44 games played. If he plays a full season, we're looking at around 45 to 50 points. That's yep. still pretty good. Um you met, we we uh, kept mentioning his breakout season, so he had um, 12 goals on 122 shots, so didn't even get 130 shots, had a 9.8 shooting percentage, which is pretty good for a defenseman. He had 10.8% uh, success rate the year before that. Explodes in terms of power play time and power play points. This is the key here. He had eight power play points in his draft year. He had 33 assists on the power play in 2018-19 and three of his 12 goals were on the extra man so 36 power play points uh, not bad for a guy that didn't even average two shots per game so um when he became the guy in moose jaw that's where his offense uh kind of took off there uh but in the 2019 playoffs he only had one assist and four shots over four games moose jaw didn't last that long and i'm guessing that probably led to the trade to the Calgary Hitman in his overage season. He was an assistant captain there, 46 points in six, four games spread. As you mentioned, that's pretty good. Another 25 power play points to add to his resume. And he averaged over two shots per game in that season. So a pretty respectable career there. Um, taking a look at both the left and the right side of the blue line on the left side. Yeah. Um, I've been hearing that Jordy Ben might be trade bait. So we'll see what happens there. Oscar Fantenberg's a pending UFA, but even still, you have Alex Edler and Quinn Hughes as your top two options on the left side, so that's still pretty good. In the system, you have Ole Ulevi, who once upon a time was a top 10 pick. Uh, Josh Tevez as well. Uh, Jack Rathbone, as you mentioned, an unsigned, pro unsigned prospect there. Uh, Jet Wu is not a left-handed shot. He is a right-handed shot, um, but... Um, there are still some decent names on the right side. There's Tyler Myers, there's Troy Stetcher, and there's Chris Tanev. Um, I definitely think it's going to be easier to slide into that spot. Um, Mitch Elliott and Jalen Chatfield are pretty decent prospects, but I think we was more offensive upside than both of those guys. Um, so I definitely think he could be a top four defenseman uh, with Vancouver someday. 
Um, but again, you mentioned Brogan Rafferty, also right-handed shot, and had one heck of a great yeah. year with the Utica Comets. So he's a name worth uh, keeping an eye out for as well. Yeah, I was going to mention the uh, the right-handed and left-handed defenseman situation, and it appears, um, yeah. So I I guess there's more of a more room for Jet Wu on the right-hand side because. You pretty much just have Tyler Myers there, um, mm-hmm. and then Chris Tanev and Troy Stetcher are both uh, free agents, or well, I guess Stetcher is an RFA, but yeah. Um, but but Tanev yeah. has a high cap hit, and in order to keep Vancouver's youth, I think he might be yeah. the odd man out there. Yeah, I could see that, especially um, with Rafferty having the season that he had. Uh, the Canucks might think he's ready right now, so right. Um. So so yeah, that's uh, definitely a possibility for them. Um, okay, uh, let's go to Vegas this time here, uh, their cap situation, uh, isn't that bad, I don't believe, um, their UFAs are Ryan Reeves, Thomas Noshik, um, John Merrill, uh, Derek Engeland, and, uh, Robin Leonard, who they just got in the trade deadline, if you remember, um, and then... RFAs, you just have Chris Chandler Stevenson and Nick Cousins. Um, yeah, they have a, an interesting, you know, because they, they were, they just became a team three years ago, believe it or not. Um, yeah. And uh, their, their prospect pool isn't actually that bad considering all that stuff. So um, it does make things quite interesting especially their first year where they have a lot of they had a lot of guys who they drafted um in that 2017 draft um and they're it seems like they're all coming into their own right now um in their own way so that's kind of a cool little thing but we're going to start things off with um uh sorry with Peyton Krebs um he dropped a little bit in the draft board because he was injured a bunch uh or not injured a bunch he had like an injury to start yeah, off was, to be specific yeah. right it was a partially torn achilles uh yeah he he played for the kootenai ice that year but um even then he had like uh 68 points in 64 games so even with that injury he was he still had like an impressive season i um, mean showed what he was able to do but that was the reason why he even dropped to 17th overall for Vegas, um, which is impressive. Uh, this year, uh, he had 60 points in 38 games, um, and he uh, and it looks like you know <laughs> that that's uh, that's that's uh, very good because that's almost he almost got to the point total he had last year um but he did that in 30 less games which is um pretty crazy when you think of it that way um so uh but yeah he uh in terms of where we could see him fit oh i guess i should mention other place other things that he did uh, the year before that, he was on uh, Kootenai as well, where he had 54 points in 67 games. Um, 
in terms of where he can fit in the lineup, um, you have Paul Stastny, who has one more year left, and William Carlson, who has a bunch more years left <laughs> at $5.9 million. So um, I think there is room for him in the top six. I guess there's also Cody Glass, who we'll talk about in a second um, as well. So maybe Cody Glass becomes like, the first line center or the second line center and uh, Krebs becomes one of those two as well. But um, yeah, this uh, Peyton Krebs, uh, they, the Vegas may have gotten um, a gem even in the first round that year because uh, it looks like he, uh, he slipped because of injury, but once he was able to recover effectively, it looks like he, he will, he'll be a, a really good player in the future. Yeah, and it also says that um, he can play on the left wing. Uh, the thing about that is uh, Pacioretty and Marchessault occupy those two yep. spots. Probably the best he'd be there is a third-line left winger. Um, so, And Stastny's on an expiring contract, so I think um, it's it's going to be a tough situation because even on the right side, you have Mark Stone and Riley Smith. So, like, their top six is arguably one of the best in the league already yeah. so um it's not going to be easy to give him top six minutes right away um but he definitely has that potential wherever you put him he's going to produce and um that's huge um in terms of how this guy is being labeled he is an offensive catalyst that's a very shifty and smooth skater that uh, can play all three zones with ease um, he can close the gap on the back check, um, so defensively sound as well. Um, he's willing to go to the dirty areas and fight for the puck. Um, but just overall, an electric dominant force that um, never takes stupid penalties, although he does play aggressive. Um, his, hockey, his hockey sense is good. And just one of those guys that always competes no matter – if your team is up by goal, uh, by up by three goals, or just getting blown up by the other team, and it's like the final five minutes of the game, where you would probably be prone to just stop caring and just run out the clock. But this guy is always competing, no matter what the scoreline says, which every coach can love and respect about him. And I think those qualities really, really showed in his game when you consider where he was playing and uh for anyone who's listening from kootenai this is probably tearing them up because after krebs played the 2018-19 season the kootenai ice franchise moved to winnipeg so oh, wow. kootenai doesn't have a whl team anymore oh that explains why okay i thought he was traded but okay <laughs> nope nope they uh they moved cities and oh, kootenai wow. doesn't have a whl team okay wow all right so all they have is memories of a title, and that's about it. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, Kootenai was not very good when he was there. Um, in 2016-17, he played six games, six points. Uh, um, two power play assists there, so that's pretty good. Uh, in 2017-18 points in 67 games, I uh, had a shooting percentage of 13.2, 17 power play points. Again, for a rookie on a bad team, that's still pretty good. Um, 26 power play points there, eight power play goals. Um, he really got off to a fast start in his draft year. He had three multi-point games in his first four tilts. 
didn't go pointless until his ninth game, then went on a nice three-game run to give him at least 11, uh, to give him at least a point in 11 of his first 12 games. Uh, we get to the final few days of December 2018, the first few days of January 2019. He has a four-game multi-point streak, which sees him uh, finish uh, that run with nine points. Uh, then he goes on a six-game point streak. Um, then he goes on a five-game point streak a few weeks later. He had six three-point games, 12 two-point games in 2018-19. And he didn't go consecutive games without a point until the first or second week of January. Um, he had another two-game drought near the end of the year, and his season-long drought of three games happened a few weeks prior to that. He was a minus 50. Yeah. He was a minus 50 that season at the age of 17, and he did that on a bad team. Not too many players, I don't think, can do that. And he also took face-offs, and he was near 50% on a bad team. So I think that's part of the reason why he was a first-round pick when you consider the circumstances, and he was still able to produce on that kind of a hockey club that wasn't really having that much success that year and was was basically getting killed every night, and he still went out there, competed, and he put up points on the board, just like he probably would have done on a very good team. So I think that's where quality really showed. And then he goes to Winnipeg, has a great year. His team's doing great, and of course the pandemic permits, uh, basically um, permits them to miss the playoffs again because there is no playoffs. Um but he would have been on a playoff team this year. He had 60 points in 38 games. I think it was like around mid-November that he played his first game. And he really, really killed it. He averaged uh, closer to three shots per game, as I said. Um, nine points shy of a career high. Despite playing in those 38 games, he um, almost equaled his assist total from last year. Um, his power play production was almost exactly identical to last year when he played in a lot more games. Um, and he was rarely kept off the score sheet. He was a top 20 scorer in terms of power play helpers near the top 40 in points, 12th in the league in assists. And this guy played like half the year. Um, so I definitely think the future is bright for this kid. Um, he can take face-offs, he can win face-offs, and the fact he can do that on a good team, on a bad team, and you put him in a situation where Vegas has all that talent and just really drives the play, he's just a perfect fit for that team, and he's a guy to watch for sure uh, when he makes the NHL. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see, and I guess, I guess just from like a de uh, deployment situation, he'll... It's not like he has too much competition for for that. I mean, I guess Paul Stasny, but I, he has one more year left after this. So yeah. I think, um, and, and I guess William Carlson too, but um, I don't know if he'll be, uh, he may, William Carlson might even be like a third line center at some point. So yeah. um, And, and the, also a key thing to keep in yeah. mind is, both this year with Winnipeg and last year with Kootenai, he was team captain. Yep. So he's already had some captaincy experience at the WHL level, and I think internationally he's he's posted some good numbers with Team Canada, 
and um, he served in a leadership capacity there too. So they're not just getting guys that can score, they're getting guys that can lead. Yeah. Which they already have in Patchetti and Mark Stone as well. True. That's a good point. Uh, let's go to uh, the next guy, because speaking of centers, uh, this is another center, um, Cody Glass. Uh, he was, in fact, the first Vegas draft pick ever, mm-hmm. which yep. is uh, pretty cool. Although not the first prospect uh, for Vegas. Um, if you, uh, this is going to be like trivia, a trivia question. I'm someday. pretty sure. Are you talking about the first prospect they signed to a contract? Yes, and Reed Duke. Yeah, yeah, yes, it was. I was about to say it, but I guess yeah. that was good that you you were able to answer that trivia question. Um, so, uh, yeah. So anyways, Cody Glass was the first drafted prospect there. Um, and he even played a couple of games when I say a couple, I mean 39 games for Vegas. Uh, but then he got injured in March, uh, which is a bit unfortunate, but maybe we'll see him in the playoffs. We'll see. Um, but anyways, uh, during this time this year, he had, 12 points in 39 games, and I just looked to see how many, uh, how much time on ice he had, and that was 13 minutes and 22 seconds of average time on ice. So he, um, so I guess that's, I guess that's become a trend as I've noticed while we've been doing this series is that sometimes they send players up, their top prospects up, um, on their board, uh, even when they, you know, they give them small amounts of ice time just to get them used to the games and stuff. But even still, like, uh, 12 points in 39 games of with only 13 minutes of ice time isn't that bad. Um, mm-hmm. And I would be curious to see how he does with more ice time, um, especially, as you were mentioning, if he has Pacioretty or... March or so, or Mark Stone, or Riley Smith as his wingers. So, um, I could see that happening um, sometime next year. Even you may even see it this year in uh, in the playoffs um, if he's healthy. Um, yeah, and then as for years before that, uh, he uh, he played for Chicago, the Chicago Wolves for. Six games the year before that, where he had five points in six games. He also played for the Portland Winter Winter Dogs, the Winter Hawks, (laughs) where he had 69 points in 38 games. Um, The year before that was when he was his best year in the WHL, where he had 102 points in 64 games, uh, 37 goals, 65 assists. Oh, and he also played in the World Juniors for Team Canada, the year last year um where he had six points in five games so um so he definitely has potential and i think he'll definitely be around but i think it'll it'll take some time for him to get used to the nhl i would imagine um but it already looks like he's he's been he's he's going to be a good player for them and like we like i mentioned for pete and krebs uh there's a lot of there's not a ton of competition for him on the center spot. So um, it's very likely that we won't, he'll be uh, like a future center, top line center for them. 
maybe a second line center if Peyton Krebs ends up uh, having better chemistry with the top line there. But um, I feel like Kobe Cody Glass has the edge just because he's been in the league or he's um, a little bit more developed than uh, Krebs has been. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I, I'll be interested to see ex exactly how he does next year in the NHL, um, assuming he's fully healthy um, and gets the right opportunity. Yeah, and he's gotten some opportunities uh, with the top six this year, which I'll allude to after um, we look at uh, sure. the 4 and one on this kid. Um, he's being labeled as a dangerous center that thinks the game at a very high level. Again, similar to Peyton Krebs, never makes the same mistake twice. It kind of reminds me of like a Daniel Alfredson where like you rarely saw him make a bad move. He, he was just always doing the little things right. Um, just a very analytical guy that's patient in the development of his strengths, uh, good in the transition up ice. Uh, he can dictate offensive chances on the rush. Again, something Vegas is known for. Um, puck control is good. Decision-making is good. Hockey sense is good. He plays just an overall complete game, elevates his play as energy levels rise in the playoffs, I think. You saw a lot of that with Vegas. They just constantly raised their game. Um, just a little bit of everything that um, Vegas needs um, out of every single player. Just the calling card is their possession game. He's a big-time asset there. Uh, he can find teammates with ease. He moves the puck well. Um, he can cause breakdowns in the other team's zone. Again, causing turnovers is what Vegas does best. Um, so one of those guys that, again, fits right in. He can lead by example, not just score. Um, so I like what the the upside of this kid already. Uh, his rookie season in the WHL, he had 27 points in 65 games. Pretty good, considering Portland uh, has been known for icing some good teams in the past. They've had Caleb Jones. They've had Seth Jones, uh, Ty Ratty as well. Um, they've, they've had some very good teams even way back when. They had Marion Hosa. So... Um, this team has been pretty good for a while. I would say they're right up there with like the London Knights as like consistently bossing very good teams. Um, you take a look at 2016-17. This was his draft year and what a draft year it was. He had 32 goals and 62 assists for a total of 94 points in 69 games, 27 power play points, nine power play goals. Um, he had, uh, nine points in 11 playoff games that year. Eight of those nine points were power play points. So really flexed his special teams muscles there. Um, in that season, he began with, uh, multi-point outings in six of his first eight games. So not just getting points in six of his first eight, multi-point outings in six of his first eight, um, a three-goal, five-pointer night against the Calgary Hitmen in November kick-started an eight-game point streak. Um, he got another five-point game uh, in late January against Kamloops. That was the start of a five-game run. Um, and then he had another four-game point streak and a five-game point streak later in the year. That was a pretty good year for him. 27-18 comes around even better when he gets 102 points in 64 games, he had another 60-plus assist campaign. He had 37 goals in 64 games, 263 shots. So that's an average of over four shots per game. 
He had 16 power play goals and 21 power play assists for a total of 37 power play points. That's pretty good. Um, and I think he went, I think at this point he was on the verge of just being flat out ridiculous, just unstoppable. He had five multi-point outings in his first six games. Then he had a nine-game point streak uh, after he was held scoreless in his third game of the year. Then he had a 12-game point streak that included nine multi-point efforts and a seven-game multi-game uh, a seven-game multi-point streak. Excuse me. Um, and then he just continued to build on that momentum. Uh, only went pointless 11 times that year. That was a big year for him. Um, and then he played in a sh- uh, played only 38 games in 2018-19. Still got 69 points. Still got over 50 assists. Still averaged four shots per game. Um, I know Joaquin Blykfeld had a great year for the Winterhawks, and he won the scoring title and all this. Uh, Cody Glass would have been on his rear if he played a full season. I don't know if he would have beaten him, but he certainly would have been close. He averaged 1.82 points per game. That's not nothing at all. Um, And um, it should also be noted that in 2018-19, you talked about some of his AHL numbers. He played six games in the AHL after uh, his time with the Winterhawks expires. He has five points in six games there. Um, his shooting percentage is ridiculous in those six games. It was like 27.3. And then he goes right into the AHL playoffs, gets 15 points in 22 games after barely being there for a couple of weeks. And his team goes all the way to the Calder Cup finals. And he does that with less than 10 games of regular season experience in the league. Like, not too many players can do that. Not too many players can have an impact like he had on that team in just a short amount of time. And he was able to do that. And then we go to his NHL stats, where he has played with Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty. And I think he was actually tested on a line with Pacioretty in one of Vegas's first preseason games this year. And Pacioretty, at the end of the game... Uh, was very impressed with Cody Glass. He's, he felt like he fit right into the team right away. So um, the players like what they see. The coaches like what they see. It's sunshines and lollipops for this kid as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah. Um, we'll see. Um, okay, so we're going to start off. The next guy we're going to talk about is Jack Dugan. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually... I feel afraid to even mention this guy because I'm hoping to get him in a lot of my leagues uh, in the prospect draft. But um, you think he's one of those diamond in the rough picks because yeah. he could probably score at the rate Cody Glass scored in the WHL if he played yeah. in the WHL, but he was a fifth round pick. Yeah, he was a fifth round pick in 2017. Yeah, the same year as Yeah. Um. So. So yeah, that's interesting and. The thing that's interesting about him is so yeah you just mentioned that he led uh, led co- all of college this year in scoring uh, by far he had fifty two points in thirty four games for Providence College uh, the next closest is Jordan Kawaguchi who isn't even a NHL prospect yet um, I would imagine he'll eventually be signed somewhere but uh, Jordan Kawaguchi has forty five points in thirty three games. Whereas Jack Dugan had 52 points in 34 games, and uh, the thing that I remember because this was this happened in March, and I was like, 
I was I thought for sure Jack Duke because this was my first year where I was sort of following college hockey, um, and I thought Jack Dugan was for sure going to be nominated for the Hobie Baker and may end up winning. He wasn't even nominated. It was like um, yeah. So just to clarify, it was just to Swayman, clarify, it was Perunovic, and I th- uh, I think Kawaguchi was the other one. Um, yeah. So just so, just to clarify something because yeah. this is important. He was a top 10 nominee, but he wasn't a top three nominee. Yeah, that's fair. So in the top 10, he was. In the top three, he wasn't. Just to put that out there. But in my mind, I feel like he should have won. Well, yeah. I mean, he won the scoring title. But, like, by by seven points, he he outscored everyone by seven points, and he still... Yeah, led led the country in assists, too, by the way. And he's... And he's still, and I, I guess it's like uh, maybe he's another type of guy who like just has a chip on his shoulder because, um, you know, he's a fifth round pick and maybe and then all of a sudden he just breaks out the next year, um, and then um, and then the sophomore year he had fifty two points in thirty four games, which is insane, um, even especially for a sophomore because usually. Uh, in college, it's the seniors and the juniors are more noteworthy, but as like a sophomore, that's crazy good. Um, so, so that's uh, interesting for him. Uh, he uh, so his freshman year at Providence, he had thirty nine points in forty one games, so that's decent. Um, and then uh, I guess his draft year. Um, he had 66 points in 54 games, but for the USHL, which I imagine is why he, um, why he uh, he slipped that far, because the USHL yeah. isn't necessarily known for uh, their competition and stuff. So maybe that like people just thought like, oh, he can't necessarily be that good. Like let's see how he does in another league. Um, but even still in the fifth round, that's kind of pretty crazy. So maybe there's something more to that. I don't know. Um, but anyways, I, 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 um, I'm going to read something from what the Providence coach, Nate Lehman said about him. Um, I think he'll be able to score and produce at the NHL level. He has been under the radar. One of his best traits is that he always has a chip on his shoulder, which is what I mentioned before. At times, he can get emotional as a player, and we're still working to reel that in a bit. I think it's a special trait. So I think that that's kind of an interesting insight into Jack Dugan and how he will be as a player, is that he plays with emotion, um, even though I guess maybe sometimes he can get out of hand and stuff. But Yeah, maybe um, that impacted the top three voting that's as also well. Possible. It should also be mentioned... That the last time a Friar even made the top ten ballot was in ninety one, ninety two. So I think the yeah. program might have a chip on its shoulder as well. Yeah. Okay. I'm also seeing here that in the USHL he had a hundred and four penalty minutes and a minus three. Oh yeah, three. I saw that too. So okay, so I think that explains it. So he he might be he might get penalized a lot, and that might might have an effect. Um, even still, so that's like a. That makes it seem like he's going to be more of like a Brad Marchand, uh, Gallagher player. So even better. I I love this guy even more. Um, (laughs) Yeah, maybe he could be the kryptonite uh, whenever they face off against Matt Kachuk and the Flames. Right, exactly. So, 
Uh, the only issue, though, that I can see is, well, first off, he signed an entry-level contract uh, for two years. Um, so I think we're going to see him in Chicago. I believe that's their the AHL. Yes, it is. Um, um, see, there, I think it's actually going to be the Henderson Silver Knights because oh. um, they're going to be getting a new AHL team. I don't know if it's as soon as next year, but it is soon. And they've already come out with like a name and a logo and everything. They know it's so in Henderson. Sooner rather than later, uh, Chicago will no longer be their affiliate. Okay, I guess that does make sense. And Henderson is in, uh, is nearby L.A. Um, Las Vegas, so I guess it checks mm-hmm. out that way. Yeah, they're they're get. I noticed a lot of yeah NHL teams are getting closer to home with their AHL affiliates. We're seeing more of that. Yeah. So uh, two things, and then I'll take it to you. Um, but. Uh, first off, he, um, so he, yeah, he signed an entry level contract. Um, and I, I guess he's a left winger, but that might be an issue, uh, in terms of his future, because as you mentioned, he has, you know, Pat Gioretti and, uh, Jonathan Marcheseau are both solidly in uh, those first two spots in the left side of things. And then on the right side, you have Mark Stone and Riley Smith, um, and all all four of those players are gonna be on the t- or have long term contracts. Um, although I guess Riley Smith is uh, gonna be a UFA in two more years, so maybe there's a chance for him to be a right winger uh, eventually. But um, so yeah, I think that's gonna be an issue for him. I think is just trying to find a spot for him in the top six, um, but. I'm, I'm sure if he's good enough in the AHL, he'll be, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll be on the team in no time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's something to wait and see about. Um, and then the other thing that I, I was just looking at his uh, college stats for a second, um, I see that he had 87 shots on, uh, on goal. Uh, which isn't too bad in 34 games. So that's about like one. Yeah, let me just do that quick math. That's it's 2.56 shots per okay. game. I thought that was lower than than uh, normal, but um, I do see that he has 10 goals and 42 assists. So that tells me more that he's more of a playmaker than a shooter, um, even though he shoots a fair amount. But um, I think that's something you should we can expect more is that he's more of an assist guy than a goal scorer, which uh, is kind of interesting. So maybe it's just like the teammates, uh, the the people around him, could, he could be better, um, or he makes players better uh, just from assisting and stuff. So that's mm. something to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, the fact he's also deadly in all situations, 22 points with a man advantage, led the country, 30 points at even strength, led the country again, and just overall led the country in assists and points. Um, His shooting percentage, like you mentioned, it's not glamorous, but like 11.5 this year, 13.5 the year before, pretty efficient at least, uh, which, which is something you like to see, and to see that consistently as well is, is pretty good. Um, he started this year on a three-game goal-scoring streak and a three-game multi-point streak, both of those busted in his fourth game. But then he went on a seven-game streak where he recorded at least two points. So a seven-game multi-point streak 
um, after that. And there are a couple of other lengthy runs to tell you about, but, but those two streaks within the first like 10, 15 games in particular really caught my eye. Um, and while he might be slayed as a left winger, done pretty well in faceoffs, surprisingly. Yeah. He um, he won 108 of 203 draws as a rookie. That's 53.2% success rate in the faceoff dot. Um, took fewer faceoffs, uh, only 76 this year, but he won 40 of those. So his success rate was still over 50%. It was 52.6 this year. So. Um, I really like his upside. Uh, you're right about the discipline. Definitely need to work on that. Um, but a guy with a chip on his shoulder, I, I think it also fits in well with Vegas because um, I don't think really anyone gave them a chance to do much of anything uh, at the start. And it's it's just, again, finding players that fit with your overall team chemistry and just overall the team identity and that's what I really like about Vegas is they're not just drafting players that are good players that can score, but they also fit the team identity rather nicely too. So um, yeah. Uh, and the fact they got him in the fifth round um, an even bigger pat on the back to George McPhee, because that is how you really win drafts. The fact that you were able to draft Eric Brandstrom, Nick Haig, uh, Nick Suzuki, and Cody Glass in the first two rounds of 2017, and then snag this guy later in round five. Yeah, like that's a very successful draft. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was interesting too because I remember the first year they kept on talking about how they uh, they like uh, they stole like um, uh, what's his face? They took they they made a lot of trades with different teams um Mm -hmm. and ended up getting a ton of draft picks because of it but like they ended up getting riley smith and Mm -hmm. they ended up getting eric halla and they ended up getting shea theodore which were all like better players than those teams chose to pick anyways so it was like um although i guess minnesota i think chose to pick matt dumba instead so (laughs) they may have looked at there but uh, or John they, they also was got one. the rights to Nikita Gusev, too. Yeah, Gusev was another one. But that wasn't the first year. Um, it was also... Oh, yeah, no, that was the first year. You're right. Yeah, and um, And uh, oh, Mark Trousseau was another one. Uh, <laughs> Florida really flubbed that one. But, like, the other thing that you don't realize is that they also got a lot of picks out of the, all these trades, too. And um, especially that first year, they uh, they did really well. Um, in the draft because they were, and I guess they were really prepared too, because they were just studying up on all the players that they could take. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you're right that the 2017 draft is, uh, was really, really good for them. Um, and also another thing that you mentioned that I guess Dugan could be a center. Um, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, so that, that's also a possibility for him, but like we mentioned, it's like they have Cody Glass and uh, Peyton Krebs already there um, mm-hmm. in the mix. Like and everywhere you look, their top nine is yeah. set pretty much. So, so it might be tough to see where he'll fit. Um, I guess maybe we'll see him in the third on the third line. Uh, that's definitely a possibility, but um, that's probably where where he'll be. But I don't know if like I feel like he could be better 
than that. Um, if he yeah, is as good I, I think in college. you did you did mention Brad about Brad Marchand, and yeah. I like he wasn't a he, he wasn't a superstar forward right away. He played with that bit of an edge, and like he could provide some solid secondary scoring, but he wasn't nearly the scorer that he is now. And I think it's just going to be that similar situation with Jack Dugan, where. You know, he's a very solid secondary contributor yeah. the first couple of years, and then he gets this opportunity to really take off, and you will see him do exactly what Marshawn did and become a top 20 player in the league. Yeah. Possibly, anyway. Um. So, this next guy... Oh, well, first off, uh, also, I think I should mention that Pavel Dora Feoff is also someone that we didn't really talk about, but... Um, mm-hmm. he, he's been pretty good in the KHL. Um, he's a left winger. He was, um, he was also another late round pick. Um, but since he is in the KHL, he's going to take some time before we actually see him in the league. But I figured I should mention him because he, uh, he, uh, he could be pretty good in a couple should, years. should also mention that, uh, he is an unsigned prospect, so yeah. he does not have an entry level deal yet with but, I mean, that's mostly because he's in the KHL. So yeah, true. <laughs> it's not like yeah. um, there's any issues with that. Um, as I know of. Uh, anyways, <laughs> this guy is another 2017 pick. Uh, and you, ju- you just mentioned him, too, um, in that 2017 pick. Uh, it's Nick Haig. Um, I think he's, well, he played a couple of games, a lot of games, or he started the year in Vegas this year. Um, where he had 11 points in 38 games, one goal, I believe that goal was against the Bruins, and then I think he was quickly sent down right after that, if I remember correctly. And then um, and then he had uh, 10 points in 21 games for the Chicago Wolves, similar stat line as well. Um, but I think he was most notable because in the 2017-2018 season, he had uh, 35 goals in 40 and 43 assists, so that's 78 points in 67 games um, for Mississauga, um, which is impressive because he's a defenseman, um, and defensemen hardly ever get 20 goals, or it's very rare to, for defensemen to get 20 goals let alone 35. I mean, I know it's the OHL, so that's different than the NHL, but still... Even in the OHL, that's pretty rare. Yeah, so so that's, like, a crazy stat line for him. Um, even still, um, the year before that, he played... Uh, uh, he had 46 points in 65 games, where he had 18 goals there. Um, and then he had uh, 24 points in 66 games... Uh, the year before uh, his first year at Mississauga. So, um, yeah, and then, oh, and I'm missing the fact that uh, last year he had 32 points in 75 games for the Chicago Wolves. I'm in a full year, 13 goals. Um, So I'm kind of, like, just looking at this number, I'm trying to, like, see why he wasn't scoring as many goals as we were expecting him in the NHL, but I would imagine that just takes time. And also, um, he wasn't getting a ton. Oh, well, he's getting 16 minutes of ice time. Although I guess that's pretty low for a defenseman as well. So, um, so maybe it makes sense to just put him in the AHL for a time and 
see how he does. Um, in terms of deployment, he is a, what I just saw him. Oh, he's a left-handed defenseman. Um, so Shea Theodore, Braden McNabb, and John Merrill are all left-handed defensemen. Um, so, yeah, I don't think he's surpassing Shea Theodore as the power play quarterback anytime soon, but um, he could be next in line, or I could see him being on a second pair for them defensively-wise. Um, yeah, but he is in a better situation because on the right-hand side, you have Nate Schmidt, Alec Martinez, and Nick Holden, who are all pretty good uh, defensemen there. Um, so, yeah, I think... Uh, we could see him around um, the league now. I, I know in the when he was playing, he uh, had a lot of hits. Um, I also had him on my fantasy team, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think maybe the scoring will, will happen. Um, it might take some time, but um, at least he, uh, he, he's shown something in the NHL. Uh, in his first go-around. Yeah, and uh, similar to Jack Dugan, um, he can also mix it up, too. Um, there were some OHL seasons where he had over 100 penalty minutes. Um, one, one of those guys that uh, will make you think twice for trying something on the ice, he's um, a guy that plays very physical, six foot six, two 221 pounds, a very big guy. Not just a guy with offensive flair, just a very big dude. Um, yeah. He's 6'6", um, by the way. He's yeah, never, never afraid to leave a mark. 221 yeah. pounds, like you said, Brett, six foot six. Uh, very rangy. Um, at the time of his draft year, his skinning abilities were a bit unpolished, so hopefully he's uh, worked a bit on that since then. Uh, but... He still has a lot of good traits that make him a good player. Um, as a rookie, he had 24 points, out 14 of for goals, which even as a rookie, 14 goals is pretty good for a defenseman. Um, eight power play points average, just over two shots per game. Um, the leading scorer on the Steelhead blue line that year only had 30 points, so he was second in team scoring by defensemen, so uh, was, was still pretty respectable. Um, the numbers went up a bit in year two when he had 46 points in 65 games. 18 of those 46 points were goals. He had 16 points on the power play, averaged over three shots per game, actually uh, posted over 200 shots um, for the first time in his OHL career. Uh, and then he had 12 points in 18 playoff games when Mississauga went to the finals in 2017. Um, he was a big part um, of their game plan uh, there. Um, the monster year where he had 35 goals and 70 points in 67 games. He also had 270 shots, so top three defensemen in that area, over four shots per game. 15 goals and 34 points on the power play for a defenseman. That's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, so a top three defenseman there. Um, just insane numbers. And... You know, any time a defenseman can hit double digits for three straight years, um, that's good. Um, when you do it in the kind of fashion that he did it, it's incredible. Uh, his AHL numbers. You mentioned 32 points in 75 games, Brett, in 2018-19. Um, he had a 
another big playoffs there when the Wolves went to the finals uh, this past summer. Um, and he had uh, five power play goals in 2018-19 as well, averaged over two shots per game. His 171 shots, as a matter of fact, um, were near the top of the league, as a matter of fact. He was a top 20 AHL scorer um, in and I believe in terms of goals, um, actually, no, he wasn't a top 20 in terms of points. Uh, there were a couple of other guys on the Wolves that were uh, in terms of defensemen, but he was tops amongst rookie defensemen in shots on goal, and he ranked fifth amongst defensemen league-wide in that category last year. He was also a top 10 goal scorer amongst all defensemen and third on the list of AHL rookie defensemen. So, um he wasn't a top 20 player in points, but he was a top 10 player defensively in a lot of other categories um, in his rookie year. Um, there are other names that I'll mention uh, that were that were um, offensively better than he was in 2018-19, but uh, the upside for Nick Haig is still there. And the fact that he only played 21 games this year and, and got uh, 10 points in those 21 games... Um, I think it says a lot when you play in more NHL games than AHL games because the team is confident, yeah, you know, we could keep this guy in the AHL and he could just torch everybody, but we think he's ready for the big leagues now, so let's not waste any more time. Let's bring him up here. And I think that says a lot about how far he's come in his overall development and how much they trust this guy to be a part of their present, not just their future. So... Um, I, I definitely think if he would have played a full season, he would have dominated, but, um, the fact that, uh, the team felt they probably didn't need to, and he could step up and play NHL minutes right away. That yeah. says a lot. And I think part of the reason why he hasn't really posted, um, that kind of dominant stat line, he hasn't even averaged a minute of power play time per game. He's averaged 55 right. seconds per game so far. So and, he, and, he, and even then, he has four power play points on the year. So um, I think when you get more top-line minutes, um, when he gets a consistent defensive partner in Vegas, um, I really think he's going to flourish. He's a guy that can throw his weight around. He can block shots. Uh, he can post a fair amount of shots on goal already. Um, and I, th- I would think in a full 82-game season, he'd be averaging over 100 shots over – almost 150 hits too. Um, so the potential for success is, is definitely there. It's evident. Uh, we've seen a bit of it already in his NHL playing days and, um, whatever the future holds, I don't know, but, um, I have a feeling he's going to be a mainstay in Vegas either way. Um, and who knows, maybe he could be, as you said, Brett, a uh, top pairing option on uh, the left side. But at worst, for now, he's going to be a solid option on their second pairing. Well, I don't know about that because Shea Theodore is still on the team. But <laughs> I, I think uh, I think there is a chance for him to be like the Eric Carlson to Shea Theodore's Brent Burns, just being another offensive yeah. defenseman there. Which would also be very, very good for Vegas. But again, it all depends on the cap situation, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I, I just wonder when his 
Yeah, you do bring up a good point that I didn't realize that he didn't even have a minute on 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 the power play. So maybe they're they're just using him differently than like uh, than he was in the uh, OHL. Um, so or uh, sorry, I forgot what league he was in before, but um, so maybe they're just doing a different. Like they're just using him differently than uh, than what we were used to, but um, yeah, maybe it, it is interesting though. With someone who can score that much as a defenseman, you'd think they would take advantage of it, but um, it doesn't look like they've done that so far. So I mean, it is cool that he can play both sides of the ice very well at the same time. So um, maybe there's something to that as well. Um, I would like to highlight a few other defensemen sure. because Nick Haig isn't the other, uh, isn't the only big name there. Uh, there is another uh, left-handed uh, defenseman uh, named Jimmy Schultz, and uh, he had a very nice NCAA hockey career at St. Cloud State University. Twenty-six points in forty-one games as a rookie. Um, he was captain from year two to year four. So again, a guy that could handle a lot of responsibility there. He had 19 points in 36 games in year two, 38 and 40 in year three, 35 and 39 in his final year. Um, also scored 10 goals in three of his four collegiate seasons at St. Cloud State. Um, and he had a 6-15-21 stat line over 52 games this year with the Chicago Wolves. On the right side of the blue line, uh, you have Zach Whitecloud who had 28 points last year with the Wolves, only 7-35 and 35 this year, but the upside is still pretty good. Um, at last check, he was on the third pairing with Nick Holden uh, on the left side uh, the last time Vegas played a game, of course. And you also have Dylan Coughlin, who was the top-scoring defenseman in the um, AHL for Chicago last year. He had 15 goals and 40 points. He had 11 goals and 24 points this year. Um, you also have guys like Braden Packle and uh, Connor Corcoran um, who have had uh, good junior seasons recently, so they could turn into something as well. Yeah, the, the, uh, I guess they have a ton of different options there, but like they, they seem to be set already with Shea Theodore, Nate Schmidt, and Braden McNabb, and even Alec Martinez now. He, he kind of uh, did well uh, in the short stint that we saw him in. So it's definitely a possibility for him as well. Um, all right. So the next guy we're going to talk about is, oh, okay. So actually I'm going to introduce this in a different way. Cause, uh, this was, um, as I remember this was like when I first heard about Jack Dugan, I, it was in the context of this other guy as well, because, so this was around, I think, um, this was around. October or November, but um, there was a time when both of Vegas's 2017 first fifth rounders led their respective leagues uh, in points. So Jack Dugan, uh, he had 24 points in his first 10 games, um, which I think you mentioned. And then Lucas Elvinus, who's going to be our next guy. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, Elvinus, maybe? Uh, he had 21 points in 15 games um, in the AHL, uh, which is, of course, pretty good, too. Uh, he ended the year with um, finishing 17th um, in the AHL, 
uh, where he had 48 points in 59 games. Um, but that, uh, and third amongst, uh, fourth amongst rookies, um, the uh, Josh Norris had the most points, Alex Formanton, and then Jackson Nick uh, passed them. Uh, passed him for in points uh, recently, but still, uh, that's pretty respectable. A uh, forty-eight points in fifty-nine games in his first year in Chicago. Um, I guess they're gonna move, but <laughs> that's still respectable. Uh, he played for the Rogel BK the year before that in the SHL. He had twenty points in forty-two games there. Um, and like we've mentioned before, this is like an SHL, which is, it's still like impressive that he can put that much out because it's like a, an older league. Um, again, he's like 20 years old, so it's still impressive. Uh, he also played, speaking of which, he played in the World Juniors that year for Team Sweden, and he had four points in five games there. Um, he had 16 uh, points in 28 games. Um, his uh, draft plus one year for Rogel BK. Um, yeah, and uh, so it seems like uh, it's interesting too because we've mentioned before with the 2017 draft class for Vegas, they, they not only had Cody Glass and Nick Suzuki in the first round, they had Nick Haig um, in the second round, and then they had these two guys in the fifth round with Elvinus and Dugan. Um, so, so that's interesting, too. Um, I'd imagine, but like Dugan, I think we'll also see... Um, it'll be tough to see where he'll fit in the lineup, per se. Um, but I think we'll see him sooner than Dugan because Elvinus... Uh, you know, the AHL is different than the NCA. Um, so, um, also it says here that Elvinus is a center. So maybe, um, and he also could be a right winger. So I think uh, there's some options there. Or he could play on the left side as well. So he could play any of those positions. Whereas I think Dugan only plays the center and the um, and left wing. So that might give them more options, but I imagine we'll see him on like the third line to start uh, next year. And then we'll eventually work his way up um, if he's good enough or uh, impresses people enough. Um, and it could be a slow burn, but it might be worth it at the same time. Um, I wonder why he fell so far to the fifth round because he, um, it wasn't like he was that terrible before. Maybe it's just SHL guys aren't as heralded as they usually are. I don't know. Uh, that would be my only guess. But um, he is six foot one, so it's not like size is an issue. So I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, in 2016 17, uh, he. Uh, played in 41 Super League games, and he had 15 goals and 30 assists for 45 points. That's the good. The bad is he also played in 12 SHL games that year, and he got no points. So they're just like, oh, his Super League numbers are pretty good. 
Uh, but his SHL numbers aren't good, so maybe we'll just meet him in the middle and get a steal in the fifth round again. And uh, it, it worked. So that 2017 draft looks even better when you consider Brandstrom and the other two first-rounders and Hag and now these two gems in the fifth round. Um, you can say what you want about, oh, well, Vegas had the benefactor of, well, yeah, but uh, you still have to you still have to hit it out of the park every time you draft. And to George McPhee's credit, they were able to get a lot of good picks. And in the later rounds especially, um, it's it's like that with every team. You need to really make your mark in those later rounds, and Vegas uh, has done that. Um, you, you mentioned his international success is pretty good. Um, I was really mesmerized about his AHL tools this year, considering – he never played a game in North America prior to this um, in terms of North American talent playing in a new league. And just the way he started off his AHL career is just absolutely insane. Now, granted, he spent the last two years in a Swedish men's league and he put up decent numbers, um, which, again, for a guy that's going to turn like 21 in August, that's that's still pretty impressive. Um but still walking into that situation, sometimes it may take a little bit of time for players to like really get acquainted with this new league and this new format and these new systems and these new line mates. And it might take like 10 or 15 games for them to really um, get their feet wet and just really take off. He took off right away. He had four points in his AHL debut with a goal and three assists against Grand Rapids. Uh, then in San Antonio, uh, in the second game, he goes pointless. Then he goes on an 11-game point streak, a run that included five multi-point outings and four of his 12 goals on the campaign. Now, he did have some dry spells later on, but there was another run where he had a point in, at least a point in eight of nine games, and then in three of his final four games, he got at least a point. But that 13-game stretch to start the year is one of the best I've seen from an AHL rookie ever at any yeah. time. Um, so overall in the season, he uh, was alone in first for total points on uh, the Chicago Wolves. So he led his team in scoring. As you mentioned, as a rookie, 17th in uh, total scoring in the league, eighth most assists league-wide, nobody on his team ahead of him. Uh, the only rookie with more helpers in the league is Brogan Rafferty, who we just mentioned uh, on Vancouver. Um, and he only spent 18 minutes in the sin bin, so a bit more discipline than uh, Jack Dugan as well. Um, you, you do mention, though, there's a lot of depth pretty much everywhere in Vegas's top nine, left wing, right wing, center. They're fully loaded. And there's also another name that I would like to mention. His name is Nicholas Roy. And we mentioned the Eric yeah, Holland the earlier. He was a part of that return. And um, right. he's a guy that has held um, leadership responsibilities in the QMJHL. Um, he had a 40-goal season one year. Um, he had 90-plus points one year. He had 80-plus points another season. Um, so a, a guy that could really bring the offense, but just a guy that's very aggressive, that can dominate on the forecheck. Again, similar to what Vegas is looking for. He plays center, but also... Uh, he's been tried recently on the left, or, 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 sorry, on the right wing, and um, 
although he's been sent up and down uh, a lot this year, the Vegas coaches and the Vegas players really like what he see uh, from this kid. They like what he brings. Um, just as a human being, they like him. So uh, he could have a future. Uh, Nicholas Rock could have a future with the Golden Knights as well. So um, Vegas is in an interesting position where the rhetoric has been, well, now they're up against the cap and they've traded away some of their good prospects. Right. They still have a lot of good prospects in the system. True. Yeah, they have uh, top a lot of good prospects for sure. Um, yeah, we didn't even mention Dora Feoff, who I just mentioned, or any of their goalies, I guess. That might be their weakness, actually, is their goalies aren't necessarily up to par. But, um, but yeah, they, they do have a lot of good uh, players or prospects up in the, in the pipeline. For I sure. think it is worth note um, to mention their goalies real quick um, because, obviously, Fleury's nearing the end of his prime. Leonard is just entering the prime yeah. of his career. And if he doesn't resign with Vegas, then all the more urgency to be thinking, okay, what's our game plan now? Uh, the good news for them is they have this prospect named Yuri Patera, who played for the Brandon Weekings, uh, yep. had an okay season in 2018-19, was probably like a top 10 goaltender in the WHL this year with the Weekings and Brandon. And uh, again, one good season doesn't necessarily dictate an entire career, but there's definitely potential there. I would definitely say he's the top goaltending prospect they have. But if there is a weak spot long-term that Vegas needs to address, it's their goaltending. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Let's, uh, I think that about does it for us here. It's funny. We talked about two teams this week and we still went over the two hour <laughs> mark. <laughs> Just went over it. So, so that's fun. Um, but it still was fun because these are uh, Vancouver and Vegas have uh, d quite a deep prospect pool and and all that stuff. So uh, yeah, uh, next week is our last prospect pool, which is gonna be our, our prospect talk, which is gonna be pretty interesting, I guess, or and kind of sad too because I, I I love doing these. Um, yeah, so uh, we're so I'm oh I have to do the. <laughs> the other stuff. Spotify, uh, you can catch us on Spotify and iTunes uh, with Lace Em Up. Our Facebook is Lace Em Up as well. And uh, our Twitter, which is where we've been updating you guys on NHL stuff uh, and during this time. Uh, that's uh, Lace Up Podcast on Twitter. Uh, that's what we use most often. I don't think we use Facebook that often anymore, but um, we do use it, but not nearly as often as Twitter. Yeah. Um, the yeah. So I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll talk again. Episode 223 of the Lace Up Podcast. <laughs>